Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. My name's Jess Scully. I'm really delighted to be with you all here this evening. I want to start by acknowledging that we're meeting on Gadigal Country today and to extend respect to elders past and present of the Eora Nation, to acknowledge that their sovereignty was never ceded over this place, and to acknowledge the next generation of First Nations leadership that's emerging here at Sydney Uni um, and in Sydney more generally. We have got a cracker of a panel. I'm really excited, and I think we have an extraordinarily important topic and a framing of that topic that is necessary It's a sort of first principles framing of a topic that we see spoken about constantly um, in the media in Australia at the moment, which is good, which is an an evolution that we're talking about this all the time. But maybe we're just not starting the conversation in the right place. Uh, And so the conversation that we'll have tonight with you um, and with our panel will take us to those core first principles. So I'll introduce our panel and then I'll talk a bit more about this conversation we're going to have. Uh, Ingrid Robens is a philosopher and professor from Utrecht University in the Netherlands. And Ingrid works on issues of contemporary political philosophy and applied ethics. She holds a chair in ethics uh, at the institutions at the uh, Ethics Institute of Utrecht University. Welcome, Ingrid. Thank you for being here. Nicole Garren is a professor and chair of urbanism at the University of Sydney. Nicole's an urban planner and a policy analyst. Uh, Her research focuses on, on comparative urban planning systems and approaches to housing and ecological sustainability. Thank you for being here, Nicole. Thank you. And Eliza Owen is the Head of Research at CoreLogic Australia. Um, Eliza's presented extensively on issues around housing in Australia, including housing affordability, credit conditions, the impact of COVID um, and housing market performance. Good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, uh, my name's Jess Scully. Um, I do lots of different things and I'm a passionate uh, bystander in the world of, of housing affordability and uh, the core questions of, of why and how did we get into this mess. And I think we know we're in a mess, right, in Australia. We know that the housing system that we have today um, is, is flawed, um, it's dysfunctional, um, it's having a hugely detrimental impact on equality in our society. It's impacting the job market and it's impacting labour supply. Um, It's impacting people's feelings of belonging and community in this country. Um, And it's creating a significant generational divide uh, and a significant wealth divide when for a long time Australia has had this perception of ourselves as being a country that sought to, to be equal, that sought to prioritise a fair go. But while we've been having a more of a conversation about the symptoms of housing, of our housing system and the issue of housing affordability, we haven't really had a conversation in this country about the foundations of this system that we have today. And that's why this conversation is so unique, because this conversation is about the ethical and philosophical foundations of the choices that we've made, the policy choices that have got us to this place and the values that underpin those policy choices. 
because I think we can sometimes in Australia and in other places think that policies are natural, uh, <laughs> you know, natural events, phenomenon that uh, kind of are handed down. That's just the way things are. That's just the market. But there are value choices that have gone into those policy outcomes that we're experiencing. And so that's why I'd like to invite Ingrid uh, to, to open our conversation tonight by talking about the ethical and philosophical basis of this conversation. Ingrid. Thanks, Jess. Yes, well, thank you for having me here and thank you to all of you for coming. Um, I'm a political philosopher with a focus on economic questions. I actually am also fully trained as an economist, but I'm going to try to ask the philosophical questions here. And when uh, preparing for this debate, I thought I could start by just saying that there, when you look at this question of the housing crisis, there are four issues that, in, in my uh, point of view, stand out. And the first one is, and that's actually the most fundamental question, is to ask what kind of good housing is, what kind of thing it is. And there are many different answers, but I want to single out two of them. Um, one is that it's a resource that's needed for people to make a home. Uh, hence, it focuses on meeting an, an essential human need. If you take that perspective, then housing becomes uh, a human right. And as we know, it is uh, mentioned as a human right in uh, international declarations of human rights. And also, importantly, it is in, in a lot of constitutions, it's mentioned as a... Uh, a social right. The other perspective at the other, well, there are many perspectives, but I think another important one is to see housing as an asset. And this can be a family that regards a family house as an, as an asset because they want to have a certain, they want to try to build up some family wealth. But it could, of course, also be individuals and, and corporations that uh, rent it out and hence see it as an investment ob object. And I think this will uh, play, I think, a real big role in the debate because there are tensions between seeing it from those two perspectives. A second thing that I think we can take from philosophy is the notion or the concept of ownership. Um, and here, I, I, well, speaking from <laughs> my ethic of the planet, we tend to think of ownership automatically as personal ownership, but actually there are different types of ownership, at least three. There's personal ownership, what each of us has. There's public ownership, what the state has. And there is common ownership, which is what communities or associations of individuals have. And I should say the common ownership in the Netherlands is very impo important because social housing, which has historically been extremely important for uh, public housing in the Netherlands, is a form of common ownership. That means it is neither uh, owned by the state, nor is it owned by profit-seeking companies. And um, that creates uh, certain dynamics. If housing, uh, so houses can be properties of individuals, families who live in their houses. It can be families who rent it out, landlords, or it can be um, commercial corporation. And the, the motivations that people have if they own a house, of course, really differs. Families want to have a home. Corporations tend to be profit maximizing. They want to seek a profit. Or uh, if, you, uh, if you're an investor who invests in, in a corporation that will then build new houses, you want to have a certain return. If the return is not high enough, you go and put your money somewhere else. Um, now, what I think, and this is going to be rough, and, but I'm sure we can get back to this in the discussion. 
What I think is essential in this whole housing crisis debate is uh, the neoliberal shift we've seen over the last four decades. I, as a scholar, have had for many years avoided the term neoliberalism. I've come to the conclusion that it basically um, disables me in speaking the truth. So I'm now uh, using it, but I'm using it as a descriptive term. Uh, although I do think that the policies that, le- that neoliberal politicians or uh, neoliberal governments have, ro- have rolled out over us have, in the case of the housing crisis, but also other uh, dimensions of life have been uh, overall on balance negative. Um, speaking of Western Europe, uh, from the 50s to the 70s, social democratic policies were dominant. And there we see, for example, the social housing uh, building. And But then what we've seen from the 80s onwards was that the, the stress was on personal ownership. And the personal ownership was subsidized and uh, and increasingly things were left to the market and we can discuss these things uh, further later. The third point from philosophy, and you already mentioned this, Jess, is markets are not just things that exist. Markets are what we as philosophers call social constructions, which means we form them by political decisions. Now, in a well-functioning democracy, this means that the voters decides how these markets are formed. Of course, not, no democracy is perfect, but the rules and regulations we put on public housing and on the housing markets are political choices. And what we see under neoliberalism is that these choices have increasingly presented as technical choices that the only rational way to do is, is this way. But as we see with uh, several examples that I can give later in the discussion, this is actually not true. We can choose to do dif- things differently if we, i.e. the voters, want it. And then my final comment is that uh, I think in this whole debate, economic inequalities are really key. Housing amplifies existing economic inequalities. It makes them worse, but also it creates further economic inequalities because with this whole stress on, on private property owning, it's actually inaccessible for the, the bottom income uh, groups. So that means that... Uh, well, there's various dynamics that went on, and we will come to that later. But the, there have been quite significant distributional effects of the housing policies that we have had that have just increased um, inequalities, both between, I think the most important one is between uh, income groups, but also between um, those who have uh, investment income. Investment income, so uh, capital owners, and those who who basically have have to work by earning a living by working, and also there's the generational issues because for young people it's increasingly impossible to um, to get a footing on the housing market. Okay, so then I'll say what the position is that I want to defend in this panel. I think we must see housing from the perspective of basic needs or human rights. I think that should be the first one. That doesn't mean we should ignore assets, but I think that should be the first one. Because if we leave housing to uh, largely unregulated markets, or actually markets that that subsidize home ownership, as is the case in my country, uh, we I think we are violating human rights. And if that is the case, then I think there are two main options. Either you say, okay, this is an intrinsic feature of capitalism, so we should move to a non-capitalist system, or you should tame capitalism. 
Um, I've uh, done work on uh, what's called limitarianism, which means that we should basically reduce inequalities also from the top down, not only focus on the poor, but also trying to reduce how rich the rich are. And that could be one way to tame, um, uh, to, to tame capitalism and to reduce those inequalities, which might then have beneficial effects on the housing uh, markets uh, too. Because this enormous amount of wealth that investors has basically screws up the housing market for everybody else. Now, there are other measures that pr could protect ordinary people without much wealth, such as requesting that existing houses can only be sold to families and not to investors, but they can build new houses because we need new houses to be built, or by giving private persons who do not own a house priority over invest investors when a house is sold, or by limiting the number of houses that people can have. I'm just saying this here to make it clear that there are many options. There are choices, so this is political, so this is value-laden. And uh, what is, I think, definitely the case in my country, but uh, what I understand here too, is that we should rapidly increase the share of social housing and take other measures that uh, address the housing crisis without only relying on profit-maximizing corporations because they will basically just drive up prices as we've seen uh, in the past. And I'm repeating just when I'm saying the most important thing is not just about housing in general, but affordable housing. Since if, we, if people don't have affordable housing, it is a source of stress and anxiety, and hence they can't make a home. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, my view. Thank you, Ingrid. <clears throat> And it's worth noting that limitarianism is a broader political philosophy, um, uh, but we're applying it in this context to the housing crisis because it, it's, we're, we need that kind of reset and rethink here. Nicole, if we could talk a little bit now about the situation that we're in in Australia and those policy choices um, that we've got here, that have got us here in the short time that we have. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit? I mean, Ingrid talked there about... Uh, the nature of housing as an asset and shelter, but it's more than that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, firstly, thanks, Ingrid, um, for that perspective. And as a housing scholar, I really welcome the intervention from a philosopher. And not only a philosopher, but also a philosopher from, you know, the Netherlands, which is a country that housing scholars look to when we ask, you know, how could things be different? And, in fact, the Netherlands would look at Australia, even though I'm sure um, Ingrid would be justifiably critical of some of the directions that housing um, policy has gone in the Netherlands recently, which are more closely resembling Australia, which I'll get to in a moment. But even with that qualification, I think policymakers um, and you know, scholars would look at Australia and see us as a country of very, very radical um, housing policies, very radically um, marketised um, housing policies. So how did we get here? And, you know, look, we could start back at, at the violence of colonisation, but I won't. We might just go to, say, you know, roughly 100 years ago or maybe we even pick it up in the post-war era, post, you know, World War II, when we had when we had exactly the same language actually that we use right now. We had a 
desperate shortage, but an actual shortage of physical dwellings, um, not just a, um, you know, not just what we could even say is a hypothetical shortage of dwellings. Actually, our housing stock has continued to grow in line with our population, which wasn't the case in the post-war era. We had a government that was supporting two things. One was supporting home ownership, which was seen to be key to sort of um, welfare, actually, particularly welfare as you know people um, move to old age and retirement, the idea being that they would be secure in their own home and their housing costs would reduce as, they, as their income did in retirement. Um, so there was a stability associated with home ownership and that's been a very important principle of our, um, of our social and economic policy in Australia. But also a recognition that government, the role of government was to intervene in cases of market failure. And there is not a situation that I'm aware of anywhere in the world that the market of its own accord delivers affordable housing for people on very low incomes at a standard that, you know, us in the advanced, you know, Western world should think of is appropriate. The market will deliver low-cost housing, but in Australia and even in the Netherlands and, you know, around, you know, the United States, United Kingdom, the standard of accommodation that's delivered by the market and was, you know, ever thus, you know, ever since industrialisation, it has been an unacceptable standard, overcrowded, um, unaffordable, in the wrong location, you know, unsustainable, all of the problems that we see today were the reasons that government said they needed to intervene to fix this problem, you know, in the post-war era, and they did that in Australia by supporting the construction of public housing and also some other um, market-supporting things such as um, producing land, you know, for housing development at a, moder- at, a, at a low enough price to moderate the market, all sorts of things that, you know, we can revisit later. So Australia, uh, over that time, though, um, you know, and and Ingrid mentioned the word neoliberalism, what that looked like in Australia when it comes to housing was actually a retreat of this government conviction that it had a role in providing affordable rental housing through public housing and instead we shifted to demand-side support, so income um, support, rental assistance, so subsidy to renters, and encouraging the private rental sector to through things like negative gearing, for instance. So we shifted to that. That's part of the way that government moved out of the picture, um, less commitment to public housing. But at the same time, something was bubbling globally, and um, that was the deregulation of financial markets, allowing so at the very same time that our government, for instance, encouraged investment in property it became much cheaper and much easier to get finance to invest in properties. And individuals in Australia took that up. Overseas, it was more um, big corporate investors. But that led to what we describe as the financialisation or the global financialisation of housing. And as we know, the cheaper money is 
and the easier it is to invest in property, the more people will, and that's why prices, you know, rise. And Eliza can can give us the stats and and show how depressing that's been recently. But there you go. So we've had neoliberalism. Mm. We've got this, this assetization of housing because housing has always been an asset. It's always been a source of security as well as a shelter as well as a positional good. You know, we're proud of our houses. We're, you know, it's a consumption good. If I could, I'd have three bathrooms, that's for sure. I've got two. Very happy with that. Um, you know, and and um, housing, you know, so it fulfils a, a whole lot of different and complex functions. But what did you want to ask? I'm sorry. I've, I've like, forgotten that the original That was all great, comment. actually. Yeah. So I feel like um, we've, got, we've got that, Nicole, because it was really... My question is, where are we at oh, now? Oh, where we're at now. Okay. And that's where we're at now. Can we – no, no. Where we're really at is we are waiting to find out, and who knows which side is right, we're waiting to find out whether our Commonwealth Government will be able to introduce the Housing Australia Future Fund, which will take us to providing 5,000 social and affordable housing dwellings per year. We know we need at least five times that. It should really be 30,000 a year. This fund will finance uh, 30000 in five years. We've got the Greens saying we will only pass the bill if you improve renters' rights, so, you know, make renting more uh, secure and limit um, rental increases. You know, we know both of those positions are right. Greens are also asking for a, a much bigger investment in social and affordable housing. That's that, you know, we want to get there too. And we've got the states, who knows how to describe what the states are doing, but the Commonwealth is saying we can't control them on, um, on the rental situation. I don't really buy that. You know, uh, if money's on the table, it's amazing what you can do. And the states have already started to hint that they, you know, um, might be up for some long overdue rental reform. Um, but the states certainly do have some powers when it comes to planning and, you know, we might talk more about that later. And, and land. And the thing planning is they land. have land and they have a lot of agencies and they have a lot of, of t- there's a lot more tools in the toolkit. I think, That's than right. Are currently even on the table when it comes to the Housing Australia Future Fund. And um, Two points and it. then I'll finish. And so the Commonwealth could be saying to the states, with your land use planning powers, why not require as part of all new developments, some affordable housing to be there, as they have long done in the Netherlands, that was the basis for the strong establishment of a social and affordable housing sector in the Netherlands and in many parts of Europe. And so I can leave it there. Thank you, Cole. I mean, this should have been a whole day, right? Uh, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> we can all talk. Um, the thing is, I mean, two, two points quickly before we go yeah. on to Eliza. We've done it here before, as you said, after World War II, there was a compact between the Commonwealth and the states. The intention was to build 600,000 housing units at that time. They actually delivered about 100,000 before that um, went, went up. Um, but that was the ambition in the 50s. And now our ambition is so much lower. Why is that? You know, and this is not something that is foreign to Australia. This is part of our, our history. And the last point which I'll make, which we will come back to, is that this happens in other places in the world. This is not unique and there are choices that are made, policy choices, to correct that market failure that, as you say, exists everywhere when it comes to housing. Well, speaking of the market, 
Eliza, I feel like this is the moment to bring you in to tell us about what the market is doing right now and uh, and how that's impacting on the housing situation. Sure. Thank you, Jess. And thanks to my fellow panelists for what is a really great characterization and, and framework for looking at the housing market. Um, Australia's housing market is rising in value. If anyone's looking to buy something at the moment, you might have experienced there's um, a, a bit more urgency even in the past few months. Uh, historically, housing values move inversely to interest rates, but I find it so interesting that even on the whiff of the idea that we could be at the peak of the um, rate hiking um, uh, decisions from the RBA, already we're getting speculation that that means the rate will go down in future and, and so there's capital growth prospects and so people are coming back in. Um, funnily enough, first home buyers have come back in most quickly and, and I think that's something that, you know, is worth noting as much as the financialization of housing has been associated with direct investment in properties, it's also a kind of um, uh, financial consideration among owner-occupiers and first-home buyers who are, you know, even they try and time the market to to maximise capital growth and return on their property. So, um, where to begin? Uh, I, I think as well, uh, I guess, um, just looking at some of the numbers and, and how that relates to uh, the, the state of home ownership in Australia as well has obviously been declining over decades. So I think there was a recent high in the 1990s of about 71%. That's down to about 66% at the moment. Um, and fundamentally, we've seen the house um, value increases of outpaced income growth. So even in the past decade, there's been a real outperformance in housing values of about 50% um, in, in the past 10 years compared to wages increasing around 25% in the same period. So that fundamentally creates more of a uh, inequality in the housing market because to keep up with the initial deposit, which by the way, a 20% deposit on the median dwelling in Australia represents about 160% of median annual household income. So, you, in order to get that deposit, you need a windfall, whether it's inheritance, whether it's having a really well-paid job that allows you to, to get that money quickly. Um, and interestingly, I, you know, uh, I, I've just got like so many thoughts from what's been said on the panel. I think um, the, even recently, we've seen policy interventions that have... Um, kind of shaped that that attitude. I would even go further to say that there's almost just the perception that housing is, is this investment vehicle, right? I find it so funny when people say that we need the market to deliver housing because the free market is optimal. We don't have a free housing market in Australia. It's not a, it's not a free market operating in a vacuum. We have 50% capital gains concessions for uh, property investment. We, we have no... Um, you know, kind of capital gains for the um, uh, family home. We have negative gearing concessions. That's not a free market operation. Uh, the introduction of the first home loan deposit scheme is something I think really brought forward first home purchases for probably relatively wealthy young people because the income caps to qualify for the scheme were so high. 
you know, th- those aren't free market kind of advantages that, that you're providing. Uh, I think that in the 2010s, it was probably easier to reconcile the idea of housing as both, um, you know, something that can accommodate everyone and something that delivers financial return because uh, we had structurally lower interest rates pushing up values and uh, we saw the level or the concentration of pure investment in the housing market reached about 40% in the 2010s. Um, so, so immense kind of speculation amid that low interest rate environment. Um, and what is so interesting about that is that we did intervene. Our banking regulator, APRA, literally put a limit on the pace of growth in housing investment lending. In 2017, they put a cap on the amount of interest-only lending that you could provide. And they didn't do that to make the housing market more equal or give more opportunity to first-home buyers. They did it to protect the banks and, and protect our financial system from exposure to, to greater risk and, and speculation. So where was I going with that? I don't know. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll <laughs> but, but no, we've I'm done it for a second. Yeah, because, sorry, Jeff. Because this introduces a really important point, Eliza, because this safest houses market that we have created has in- introduced incredible fragility to our entire financial system because the whole we ended up coming up with a great metaphor for this when mm-hmm. we were talking <laughs> so i think eliza what have you said this is the housing market in australia is the cockroach that just never died right <laughs> in, the, in the financial crisis the cockroaches got a little bit wiped out in other parts of the world but in australia that didn't happen we didn't have a crash And instead, we just thought, let's put more things on the back of the cockroach. And we have built our entire kind of financial health as a nation. Uh, You know, our big four banks, you know, um, people's retirement, superannuation, their their whole economic future is predicated on this perpetually growing housing market as though we don't realise that there are human consequences to that, right? Do you remember where you're going, Eliza, with me? Oh, just to say that, you know, when we talk about radical intervention of of the housing market and making it more um, uh, accessible and and equal, like we totally can do it and we totally have done it. We just haven't done it in the framework of creating a more equal, fair housing system. We've done it in the framework of um, uh, making sure our mortgage market is is stable and, and resilient to risk. The The point that keeps coming through here is that, these are the, the housing market we have today in Australia is the result of ideological choices, of value choices that we've ended up in this position. And it doesn't have to be this way. There are other, there are alternatives from elsewhere in the world. Um, and so, uh, I mean, we, we could just talk about that all night. But why don't we start? Ingrid, is there anything you want to share in terms of alternatives from elsewhere in the world? Yes, but I actually want to ask first a Go question, and that is, we have been talking about homeowners, but actually the question is how about people who rent? So in, in the Netherlands, I digged up the figures, the uh, 85%, 85% of uh, houses are privately owned, and that was only 28 after the war. Uh, social housing um, was 12% after the war, peaked to 40% in 82, is now in at 29, so we had a backslide. And then the big thing is that... Um, uh, actually, the government had a, an attack on private rent because they thought uh, people, the landlords, were actually 
what you said. They were delivering um, bad housing at high high uh, rents. So they thought this is uh, after the wars. Well, after the war until the late seventies, the policies were social democratic, and then the focus was really on the quality of housing, and that that didn't mean owning a house. Yeah. So and I so I, I in preparation of this debate, I read this book by a. A Dutch uh, specialist on on housing, uh, Cody Hochstenbach, and he one of the things he keeps pressing is why do we glorify owning a house? Mm -hmm. So, and and one of the things he says is um, once people own a house, even as families, not as investors, they see it as their as their assets, as mm -hmm. what they want to keep for their old age or for passing on to their children or whatever, and they are their mindset becomes a calculating mindset and they will vote for policies that will protect home ownership and that tend to be also policies that actually are not good for people who rent, who tend to be the people either who are very young or to be the people who don't have lots of money. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, all the discussions also when we talk about solutions should also look at the interplay between mm -hmm. uh, owning and renting. And one could ask the question, why are all these countries... I think yours as well as mine, so obsessed with owning a house. And why is there not just much more common ownership and then we rent it out? Yeah, I think Nicole touched a little on the importance of home ownership in Australia in that if, you're, if you get to retirement and you don't own, then again, in the context of a largely private rental market, you're kind of screwed. Um, you, you don't want to be paying private rents by, by the time you're in retirement you certainly don't want to have a mortgage. Um, there's too much volatility. Uh, rents have become very high uh, in, in recent years, up about 28% since the onset of the pandemic. Um, the median rent in Australia is just under $600 a week across all oh, our So grounds. rents are not regulated. Very high. Oh, no. Oh, no. no. And, no. and if it's proposed... <laughs> it's, okay, here I have yeah. a solution for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very yeah. timely one. It's, I mean, it's such a timely point in the national conversation. And Eliza is 100% correct, as is Ingrid. We need actually a reset on that. And it doesn't actually matter which tenure it is, as long as it's secure, as long as people have agency, as long as it's fairer. But I think for all of the reasons that Eliza pointed to in terms of the way that our whole economic system, particularly in Australia, we're not the only ones, but particularly in Australia, has become so connected to housing and worse, not even connected to new housing construction, but actually connected to the sunk asset that is our existing housing stock, that extraordinary, um, you know, precarity is what has, I think, under, it's what underlies some of the political paralysis when it comes to making the right kinds of policy changes. And in part, I think there is a real fear and an unfounded fear, actually, that the only way to get us out of this mess is somehow to crash the property market, which, of course, everyone's afraid of because of the 67% of homeowners who don't want to see the value of their asset drop and also who will stop buying things in the economy and therefore will actually bring down the economy if their 
if the price of their, um, if the value of their asset drops, not to mention, you know, the importance of the construction sector, et cetera. So there is actually, I think, a valid political fear that if, you know, the option is crashing the property market or somehow trying to provide palliative cures around the edges, that maybe that's what you do, at least for, you know, their own short-term, um, you know, political term. But the really good news is that there is an option. There is actually, you know, the lucky thing is that you can actually fix this without wrecking the property market at all and also supporting the important sector of the economy that is, you know, like it or not, the construction sector. And that is simply by expanding the bit of our housing system that is not-for-profit or limited profit. So it's just becoming a bit more like Holland. And we can do that, you know, obviously funding is 100% critical. And if we want to keep on, you know, funding negative gearing and whatever and whatever, at least if we could redirect that somehow more towards a non-profit new housing construction, that would be a step in the right direction. And we can also use our planning powers to make sure that we embed, you know, affordable and limited um, profit, rental and ownership as part of new development. So there is a pathway forward, uh, but it takes a little bit more intelligent analysis than we've seen lately. And, you know, anyway, over to our very intelligent oh. analyst sitting over here who's also, you know, this, knows the way around politics. The thing that's extraordinary in Australia is um, – you know, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. Um, like, and, and, you know, you can really apply that to so many domains. But in housing in particular, right, where um, one, of my, one of my jobs is working for the World Bank and um, I'm working on urban um, projects in, in Indonesia, which also has a range of challenges. Um, but one of the things I find so illuminating about that work is understanding that every country has a set of policy choices that they've made around land and housing. And there are fundamental choices that we are just not even having a discussion about in Australia. So you mentioned it earlier, Ingrid, um, in places like Spain, Colombia, Brazil, for example, the right to housing is in the constitution. Um, the social purpose of land is in the constitution and everything flows from that. The idea that being the owner of a piece of land entitles you to more rights than obligations back to society is something that is tempered through policy choices um, and we don't have that conversation here. Instead, we subsidise private ownership um, to the exclusion and the detriment of housing as shelter. Um, and so that is, we need to have, you know, a, a kind of constitution-level conversation about this. And then we need to think, well, what are the other policy tools like making renting something that isn't um, sort of dehumanising in, in, you know, in its essence in Australia? The way that people in the rental market uh, have such short, our, our tenure of our rental is basically six months. I know. You yeah. know, 
explaining Australian housing to people from yeah. around the world should be a TV show um, <laughs> because the shock is extraordinary. Six months, you know, people ha- uh, people are lose the opportunity to become connected members of their community and feel a sense of ownership in a place, not in a property, because of the way we treat housing, where we treat renters in this country. Um, and so there's the, the, the fundamentals of land and the um, contribution that, for example, in a place like Spain, uh, 20% of any development must be social housing. Um, even in the UK, there's a much higher standard of what percentage of, ha- of developments needs to go into affordable or social housing. These are, these are standard in other parts of the world. And then to the point that you made earlier, Ingrid, the idea that there could be rental caps, for example, is something that's being debated uh, quite a lot in Australia. Does anyone else have any other ideas to, to throw into the pot since we're redesigning housing in Australia? Yeah. I guess the cap debate has, it, it, it gets very politicised, gets shut down quite quickly by the real estate institutes, um, which, you know, they're, they're doing what they have to do um, and, and they do an incredible job. <laughs> um, and I think it was the Queensland government proposed expanding um, land tax thresholds to, to, to count interstate properties and, and the REIQ um, had shut that down within a couple of days. Um, they just, yeah, get out onto media and, um, yeah, sort of defend, I guess, the private investor and that wasn't what we signed up for and, yeah, so that's a bit of a challenge. I guess the other point that I wanted to make earlier, which I don't think I hit home, was the um, the reconciliation of um, the asset, uh, housing as an asset and housing as a um, provision for, for social good in the 2010s was that because there was such a high concentration of investors, growth in rents um, was very low. It was about averaging about 2% a year through the 2010s. So that, I guess what I mean is that that doesn't work now because of the volatility that, that we've seen in the rental market over the past few years, very different to, to what we saw in the 2010s. So one other thought I have is that, so I think it actually, uh, so the, let me start with saying something that uh, Cody Hochstenbach um, says in his book. So he wants to give for, this is written for citizens. It, but it's based on his research and the research of his colleagues. And he wants to explain the situation, interpret it, but he also says, interestingly enough for a scholar, I want you, the reader of this book, to become angry. And uh, what we've seen in the Netherlands is that um, um, there have been demonstrations, protests on the street, housing protests, um, a couple of years ago, mainly led by, by young people who just had no, I mean, they were, they had just no place to live because the, the average price of a house, um, um, has gone up, um, from in 95, it was 160,000 euros and now it's about 400,000. So, and it's impossible for, because wages don't that go up. JP. Yeah, Jura. but yeah, but, <laughs> no, no, it's Jura. I don't it's know. Jura. But so, in any case, it is. It just shows it's more than more, far more it's, than double. It's more and of course, in, we know that incomes actually are not. Yeah. If you don't have wealth, we know wealth uh, grows faster than incomes. It's what you explained also. Yeah. Then you're stuck. And for young people, they can't get a foot through the door. So they had demonstrations. 
that really has put housing back on the agenda as something that cannot be left to the market. And there are some interesting small things that are happening. So one thing is, um, and so that's why I'm hesitant to say whether we may be at a pivotal point where we are breaking with the neoliberal narrative or not yet. But the government always had these uh, reports. They called it the housing market reviews. And they calculate, for example, how many houses do we need and, and so on and so on. As of this, and then the, 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 uh, for a couple of years, we didn't have a minister of housing because they thought it's solved. We've given it all to the market. <laughs> and then there were these protests. They came back with a new minister. Is no longer, they no longer speak of the housing market, but they now use the term public housing. Public housing is something else than social housing. Public housing is all of us, all, everybody. Literally in Dutch, it's Volkshuisvesting, which means the people's housing the people. And that whole shift to this is about the public good, how we literally live together rather than a market where you transaction objects. That is the most fundamental thing. And um, so I think it is really important to, to, to emphasize what ideas do. And if that is what is missing in the Australian debate, of course, I'm not to judge. I have a radical one that actually can shift the Overton window. You know the yes. theory of the Overton window? You just need to see something more radical to actually see what's all possible. And that is the citizens in Berlin. The citizens in Berlin have um, uh, gathered signatures to then demand a referendum. And the referendum was about a statement, should the government of uh, the Berlin states, uh, the citizen government, should it socialize... Um, all the uh, housing units of housing corporations that own more than 3,000 housing units. This is, uh, and the majority of the citizens voted in favor, this concerns 240,000 apartments in, in one city. So, and uh, they've now uh, had a committee that looked into the legal uh, acceptability of this, and this committee has come to the conclusion that, yes, it is legal that the government socializes, which just basically means takes from private ownership into uh, either uh, common ownership or, or state ownership, houses. And the reason why the citizens do this is because citizens own ordinary wages, the teachers, the nurses, the firemen, they just can no longer afford to live in the city. And that, I think, is the essential thing that that makes people so angry that they have to go live one hour away, commute. So their whole quality of life becomes much worse. So I do think, I don't, I do not know to what extent such things play a role here, but you need to really, and with you, I mean, all of us, no matter where we are, it is a political thing. Yes. And, and it's an interesting point here because a lot of people described as key workers, um, you know, teachers, um, you know, police officers, uh, ambulance drivers. There's been always been a lot of coverage in the last few years about how you have to live two hours out of Sydney um, in order to be able to work in those industries and to service the city. It's it's deeply dysfunctional. It, the, I'll, I'll clarify the point around Berlin. They're actually going to buy the properties at some. So they're not going to commandeer yeah, them. No, they're actually course. going to purchase them. So, so, you know, it's not such a bad deal, but that's in a situation where you have more institutional ownership of property than we necessarily have in Australia, um, where it tends to be more um, individual owner. But it's also because there is a, con in the, in the German constitution, there is a notion on 
ownership yeah. that basically went to what you said about obligations. Yeah. In the German, I don't know the exact phrasing, but it's something like um, you that ownership ownership should reflect the common good, and that is so anti the values in neoliberalism. And that aspect of the constitution is not much used. But now that German citizens who are fed up with these policies have discovered it, they're going to use it to basically reclaim certain aspects of the welfare state, and in this case housing, where they think that the shift to the market and to personal and individual ownership has gone too far. One of the things that we need to do as Australians is to realise that we have a, a whole world of policy options to choose from. We have a whole history of policy options to choose from and we need to expand both in time and in space where we look to for inspiration and to have a more fundamental conversation about where we could be where we're going and where we could be going and this was a pretty good start so please thank our fabulous panel thank you Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. <laughs>